My name is Darby Vickers. I am a PhD candidate, and my work deals with the intersection between epistemology, philosophy of education, and ethics. So I look at questions like, how can we train the next generation to be ethical? Um, should education be pleasurable? Um, and things like, uh, do we have an obligation to disseminate certain types of information or transmit certain types of knowledge in a democracy? Uh, I hope that my work will um, help reform education in the world um, and cause people to take pleasure in learning. Um, thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. Before we get started, I have some news. If you remember all the way back in episode one, we had a Miss Kellen Cartub. In that episode, she talked about planning her marriage and planning her thesis defense all at the same time. Well, she is now a... Dr. Mrs. Kellen Cartub. Hooray! If you go onto the show website, www.thisgradlife.com, you'll get to see bios of her and you'll also have links to her social media pages. If y'all wanted to head on over and congratulate her, I think that'd be a real nice thing to do. Second bit of news, today's guest, you will soon find out, is a big fan of the old Greek classics. I mention this because she too is going to have a podcast about the Odyssey. This is in support of the drama department over at UCI. Through the February 5th and 9th, they will be putting on a production of the Penelopead. The idea is that if you want to have a proper appreciation of this play, then you also want to have a proper appreciation of the Odyssey. And that's what this podcast is going to be about. Included in this three-episode series, dropping December 5th, just three days after the drop of this episode, you will get a amusing and brief catch-up of the Odyssey. There will also be interviews by professors who offer a bunch of different viewpoints about this great work. If you go into the Podcasts tab of my website, you will find bios of all our previous interviewees and today's interviewee as well. There you will find all of the information about this new podcast and the play upcoming in February. That's it for this Grad Life news. Let's go to our regularly scheduled programming. Hope you enjoy the show. Howdy folks, welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Joining me today, we have Darby Vickers, who is from the Department of Philosophy here at UCI. We've actually only briefly met before uh, regarding research communication, research outreach, um, where we were planning on figuring out, oh, can we get Bruising Brains, which is my old organization that I helped run back when I was in grad school. Can we, them and the humanities, work together because we were traditionally hard STEM focused and that was something we wanted to change is how we... Got to meeting each other, and now we're on this podcast, so I want to thank you for taking me up on this offer. Yeah, absolutely. So let's begin, as we always do. Could you tell us about the work that you do in grad school? 
Okay, so um, the work that I do in graduate school looks at this sort of interesting intersection of these three areas of philosophy. So I look at ethics, which deals with, um, I look at ethics from the sort of broad Greek conception. So it's um, the philosophy of how we should live um, and what we should do to be sort of good people and to live the best possible lives. Um, then the intersection between that and epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and understanding and those kinds of concepts. Um, and then philosophy of education. So how should we educate the next generation? How should we educate people? Um, and I'm interested in that both in the like formal educational context and in sort of public education and public outreach. The details of what I look at, um, at the moment I'm working on three large projects. Uh, the first one is my dissertation in which I'm looking at um, Plato's philosophy of education um, and specifically how we train the next generation to be virtuous um, in the Republic and in the Mino, because those are the two dialogues that focus strongly on education and specifically education and virtue. Um, and then the second project that I'm working on, I'm actually the a co-investigator on a study being run by Professor Barbara Sarneka in the Cognitive Science Department. Um, she has been running this amazing writing workshop for the last seven years, and she's now writing a big NSF grant to fund a study running the workshop. But um, she ran a pilot study this summer, and I got to be a co-investigator on it because I had been the first person outside of the sciences and social sciences to join the writing workshop, and it was really, really useful for me. Um, and so I encouraged her to bring in more humanities students, and then when she was opening up the study, to open it up to humanities students and humanistic social scientists, because she was looking at purely um, quantitative social scientists before that. Um, and she agreed, but she asked me to be one of the people on board, and she also took on another philosopher named Rena Goldstein from my department. Um, who I urged to join the writing workshop. Um, so that's been really cool. And uh, preliminary data suggests that the particular model of writing workshop that she's using is incredibly successful, not only in increasing uh, graduate student writing productivity, but also in increasing gradu graduate well-being based on some measures of some traditional well-being measures and measures of depression and anxiety. Um, and then the third project that I'm working on is an information literacy project uh, that is a series of events. So the first event that we did um, was at the Archaeological Institute of America annual meeting where we sort of gauged the um, interest from the archaeological community in examining how to combat uh, conspiracy theories about archaeology. Um, and then the second event will be a big information literacy event using archaeology as a case study to try to teach undergraduates uh, how to um, read and be more suspicious of news <laughs> so that they can uncover fake news and also how to like talk to their friends who are sharing fake news stories and try to convince them that they're wrong. Um, and then the final event will be um, an interdisciplinary academic conference hosted in February at UCI um, where we will bring in people from um, cognitive science, uh, comparative literature, philosophy, archaeology, um, sociology, and a number of other disciplines disciplines uh, to come try to figure out how we can communicate more effectively with the public in an age of declining so public trust of academic institutions. As someone who is also very interested in the dissemination of proper knowledge and information, uh, good luck with that. <laughs> um, I wish you the very best. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was... 
it's an interesting thing because um, I had been talking to an archaeologist on Twitter about the sort of problems of the interest in fake news, specifically about archaeology. And he basically said, look, this is not a problem that archaeologists can solve. We need help. We need help from other disciplines. And uh, that was my inspiration of like, okay, maybe I can put this together because I communicate with people from all sorts of disciplines. And um, it's going to be a really interesting uh, thing to see if we can come up with any concrete steps to move forward. <laughs> gotcha. So conspiracy theories in archaeology you're talking about. Yeah. So like, you know, the popular TV show Ancient Aliens? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. Yes. Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, there have been spinoffs to Ancient Aliens. Megan Fox has a show on the travel channel called Legends of the Lost, which is basically arguing that like archaeologists have been hiding all sorts of stuff from us and she uses like magic and things to try and uncover the truth it's oh, it's very strange oh. um, <laughs> uh, but um it's not just that i mean there's a rumor that like resurfaced recently on the internet that the smithsonian is holding the bones of like giants that used to live in the americas like somewhere in one of their basements and hiding it from the public there are all of these weird conspiracy theories and in the age of social media, they're just disseminating at this bizarrely rapid rate. And then archaeologists are on, engaging on social media and trying to communicate real things, and they're coming up against a public who's primed to disagree with them. It's this really strange phenomenon. <laughs> mm. What do, do you think that comes from? There's definitely... For sure, some people want to just believe in nonsense, like flat earthers, anti-vaxxers. There does seem to be like a resurgence going on. Um, do you think uh, that resurgence is a lot due a lot to the modern technologies like social media? Do you think maybe that sort of people like that have always existed and we're just empowering them now somehow or something like that? Yeah, so um, there's some really interesting stuff on this. Uh, Professor Kaylin O'Connor of LPS and her husband, um, Professor Jim Weatherall, also of LPS, um, just wrote a book called The Misinformation Age, where they argue that these kinds of stories have been popular since like at least medieval times. We have records of these kinds of crazy stories that are around there. They open their book with a story about... Um, uh, a tree that supposedly grew fruit that had like small animals in it, like lambs inside of it. It was very, very strange. <laughs> um, and this was something that was like popular and written about in multiple books and people would talk about it as though it totally existed. Um, so this phenomenon isn't new, but it seems like the overload of information that people have to process and um, our natural inclinations toward like confirmation bias um, and stuff like that and the particular like groups that people are invested in cause them to sort of align their beliefs with some of these strange things. And then what's weird is that some of these uh, things that seem innocuous, like the ancient alien stuff, seems at first to be innocuous, but um, a lot of it feeds off of the belief that, say, the Egyptians in ancient times could not have built the pyramids because they couldn't have been technologically in advance because they weren't white, Western, European, whatever the case may be. Um, and so the reason I think that these are popular is they feed in 
to some of these like natural inclinations that people have to be racist or to be sexist or to be, you know, to whatever the case may be, whatever their biases are. And that's why certain things get lodged in people's minds and then become popular in groups. Yeah, certainly one thing I've learned about people is that they can be incredibly smart and incredibly dumb at this very same time, right? They Absolutely. People are very good at sniffing out uh, things that will, con- that will uh, confirm their biases from a mile away. Right. Even in, at the surface, it has almost nothing to do with each other. When I think of ancient aliens, I don't think about, you know, the institutionalized racism and sexism <laughs> that goes on today. It's not my first thought, right? But now that you mention it, it's like, oh, I guess it does make sense. Yeah, it's it's more obvious in cases like um, the color on ancient Greek statues. So there were a couple of um, female scholars, um, one of them a professor named Sarah Bond at the University of Iowa, who wrote some popular articles about the color on ancient, ancient statues and how uh, the way that we see them isn't the way that they were and tried to sort of reconstruct what some of the colors looked like, eye color, hair color, skin color, um, the color of garments, things like that. And suddenly she got like massively attacked on social media um, and, you know, rape threats and death threats and all of these crazy kinds of things. And the reason was she was being targeted by white supremacists because although we wouldn't think about it, the white marble monuments of ancient Greece are something that they use as propaganda to show the like whiteness of the past and the greatness of the past. Um, And so when you talk about the fact that these were colored statues and they didn't look like this. It somehow takes some of the legitimacy out of the myths that they use to define themselves. Um, and so, and, and similarly with some of the archaeological stuff, the Golden Dawn, which is a fascist group in Greece, um, has been heavily invested in the, um, findings of like DNA from, uh, ancient bodies that are in Greece because they want to show that the Greeks are autochthonous, um, that they come from there, that they've always been there and that there's a sort of strict line of descent from the people that were there before because it, they use it to sort of bolster this xenophobic and anti-Semitic agenda. Um, so it's really interesting how these physical objects and what we can learn about them can get twisted to these odd purposes. Right. I was expecting for my head to spin a little bit <laughs> <laughs> when we were going to do this interview, uh, which is kind of why I wanted to, actually. Um, because I knew this is the sort of work that you did, and I at least had a vague idea. Um, oh man, I didn't expect my head to be spinning so soon. Oh my, because you know, we're here because we care about uh, knowledge and seeking knowledge and coming to something that we would consider is true. And then here we, here's a bunch of stuff who come from it from an opposite approach of they have a truth, and now they're going to find the evidence that supports that truth. Right. Does that, I guess, how, how do you, I know if I was in your position doing what you did, I'd have a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> how, how are you dealing with sort of the, uh, the dreadfulness of the situation here? Um, well, I basically am doing this crazy research project because this is the only way I can think of to try to fix the situation. I don't know how to do this myself, but what I can do is I can fund 
the best possible conversation and host it on campus and try to make that happen. Um, and so in particular, this conference in February that I'm running will bring in people from all over the country and hopefully we'll bring in even some international people if we can have enough money in the budget. And um, uh the point is not just to have a normal conference where everybody is going to sit there and give a speech and then people are going to raise their hands, um, but we're actually going to uh, try to use some unusual methods to get people to talk to each other. So we are going to, less unusual perhaps, have a um, happy hour poster session where graduates are going to give flash talks about their posters and then everybody's going to go get champagne cocktails and then come around and talk to each other. Um, and it should be posters from a whole bunch of different disciplines all in the same room. So it will force these conversations in between people from different areas um, who are looking at the problem from different um, perspectives. And then on the second day, one of the things we're going to do is a world cafe session, um, which is a a method that's used for uh, creating tough interdisciplinary or cross-generational conversations in business, where we'll set up the room in which the conference is held as a cafe, and there will be coffee and tea and snacks, and everyone will be at small tables. Um, and we'll give them a set of questions to guide the conversation, but it's essentially a real-time problem-solving session where people from all over campus um, and the speakers from the conference and anybody who cares to attend will come together and try to come up with solutions and then we'll have a discussion together afterward those are pretty great ideas i think yeah i'm, I'm hoping that it it goes as well as i want it to <laughs> fingers crossed fingers crossed fingers crossed so being in the humanities department i imagine the things that you do in your day-to-day -day grad life is not like in some ways, sort of like what I what I did being in, like you know engineering. Uh, I know it seemed like your second project that you were working on. You were working with the cognitive sciences, and you were evaluating. Oh, this thing does it do as well as we think it does? Oh, great, it does better. Wonderful. That sounds like more um, a quantitative study, right? Where yes. we're looking at something. Yeah, uh, and this is my first foray into quantitative experimental social science, um, and it's been super cool. I love learning about that aspect of academia. Awesome. So could you tell us about – so is it more than – more that you are responsible for running these sorts of conferences and stuff like that um, as part of your PhD in humanities or I, I guess how – Mostly we're evaluated on our writing. Um, so are you writing articles? Uh, are you writing an interesting dissertation? Is that dissertation going to be published as a book? These are the kinds of things that we're interested in. So most of my research involves me with a whole bunch of dusty old books uh, laying out on a table, very like 17th century or something, <laughs> uh, and uh, trying to figure out how to evaluate the arguments in those and combine it with sort of new research and new ideas and, and create original content. Um, for me, because I'm interested in having interdisciplinary conversations and trying to create events that will spark these ideas, I'm also doing all of this, these sort of side projects. But eventually, in order to get evaluated on this kind of stuff, I will be pulling out 
stuff from those conversations and turning it into research and publications um, with my co-organizers and potentially by myself as well. Gotcha. Could you then um, talk a little bit about that process of looking through dusty old tomes, et cetera, et cetera, (laughs) to uh, come up with something new? So is it that you're taking some of the stuff that's already been written and you're trying to... I guess, what exactly are you trying to do with all that stuff and how is new stuff being created? Okay, so um, some of what I am interested in is trying to get a better understanding of old canonical texts. So my training is in classics, which is Greek and Latin. So my first you know, years in college were spent translating old texts and learning how to do that and learning those languages. And now what I'm doing as a philosopher is essentially trying to extract arguments, um, figure out what of what Plato says is interesting and new, how is it formulated, and um, then argue against other people who argue for interpretations in other ways. Now, that seems like it doesn't have much in the way of implications for the world around us um, and is a bit esoteric. And it is, but what's cool about the text that I'm using is that they've been around for 2,500 years for a reason. There are some really interesting and exciting ideas that we can use to shape educational policy, to shape curricula, um, to shape the way that we communicate with the public, and to try and change people's ideas in the real world. Um, And so that's what I like to do, is I'm trying to figure out what the real world implications are of the stuff that I'm reading. And then I uh, enact that by running research and also teaching. So I'm teaching an intro ethics class right now. And I'm using these ancient texts to get students to reevaluate the plans that they have for their lives. And I'm specifically doing this at a community college, which is really fun because a lot of these kids are 18. They're coming fresh out of school. They don't know what they want to do. They're sort of trying to figure out what they're doing so that they can transfer to a UC or go into a, a profession. Um, and I get to teach them critical thinking skills that they can adapt to figure out what their goals are and how they're going to meet those. So, okay, interesting it's a question about that. I know when I was much younger and just starting off my undergrad career, the philosophy courses that were offered seemed interesting to me because I, you know, I think to myself, oh, I like thinking this sounds kind of cool, right? Uh, but I guess knowing uh, what I do now, there might be that opportunity to be like, no, that's not how that works. Let me like show you how it actually works. Let's go through all this stuff rigorously. Uh, is that something you do? Is that? Yeah. And it's actually been a really interesting um, adjustment as a teacher to talk to these students because I've, I've had a couple of students that have come in and they're just like, this class is not what I was expecting. And I went in and I talked to my counselor and they were like, ethics is easy. And, you know, this class is not easy and it's challenging my values and it's forcing me to, you know, write in new ways and like try to, you know, communicate about the world in some way totally different than yeah, how welcome I'm to college kids. Yeah. <laughs> so that's part of it. Um, but also it's a different style of teaching than a lot of intro philosophy classes because often intro philosophy classes give you a taste of what's really cool about philosophy and try to bring people in with the like sexy topics. But um, 
I think that philosophy is useful for just examining your everyday life and what kind of actions you take and what kind of person that makes you. And I'm trying to communicate that to my students and then at the same time give them the benefits of philosophy, which are things like um, forcing you to uh, communicate a complicated idea in concise terms to somebody who has not read any of the work that you're reading. Um, and so those are the kinds of things I'm trying to drill into my students. And um, it's not necessarily what they were expecting out of a philosophy class. <laughs> so is there any part of you that's like, oh, I know those counselors said ethics would be an easy class. And you just, just want to strangle them or something like that. And then... <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not judging you. I believe that you want to teach these students a complete story. Mm -hmm. But I'm just framing this from my point of view. Like I know I'm a bastard, and I would totally do that. <laughs> right? Is there? Is there like? Um, do you feel that in any way? Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's certainly not a coincidence you do what you do. Certainly. Right. Uh. So then how how did you sort of follow – how did you get into this sort of line of work then? Spe specifically the way you're doing it too. Yeah. Not um, letting these kids get away with an easy ethics class, <laughs> which I respect. Yeah. Well, I'm also – so I combine that and I also partially tell myself that I'm doing them a big service because I'm forcing them to think about these issues. But also, um, one of the things that I'm pairing the ethical text that they have with is a book on metacognition. So uh, there's a, a like little uh, like 150-page book written by a woman um, named Sandra McGuire uh, called Teach Yourself How to Learn. And it's it breaks metacognition and um, how you can use it to uh, – reformulate your study skills into language that high schoolers and undergraduates can understand. Could you define what that is for us? Oh, yeah. Sorry. So metacognition is a way of thinking about your own thinking. So it um, teaches students how to examine their learning practices um, and how they memorize information and whether or not they can evaluate whether they understand information, how to assess that um, so that they can make themselves better students and better learners. Um, and I frame this to my students as it's my ethical obligation as a teacher to give you the best tools that I can to help you become a successful student. But also, I started off the course with having them read uh, Plato's Apology. And so Socrates is the ultimate metacognition specialist, right? He thinks constantly about his own thinking and is always wondering whether he could know something more deeply or whether he's wrong and testing his ideas against the ideas of other people. Um, and so what I tried to show them is this parallel of the type of thinking they need to do as a philosopher and the type of thinking they need to do to become better students and see the sort of way that those two things are connected so that the class should help them succeed not only in thinking about their own goals and how they live their lives, but also how to be the best students they can be so they can go where they want to. Um, so I feel like I'm giving them a hard course, but they're going to get so much more out of it than they would if we just sort of like talked about abortion for a while, right? Um, so uh, how did I get into this? Um, it's a long story. So I started off, uh, I was a nerd in high school. Um, I was a like real nerd. Um, yeah, and I couldn't tell. <laughs> uh, 
I decided to teach myself the Dwarvish alphabet out of uh, Tolkien's oh. The Hobbit um, yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was young so that I could pass encoded notes to my friends at school. Um, and we did that. We used it for that reason. But I suddenly decided um, for whatever reason that I wanted to learn a language with another alphabet because that was a cool idea. And so I you know, annoyed my parents until they found me a camp where I could take Greek courses. Um, and so I went and I took a bunch of ancient Greek classes um, and then continued uh, to work with students at UCLA when I was in high school um, to learn ancient Greek. Um, and I went into college trying to decide I was either going to go into physics because that's what I was interested in academically at school or I was going to go into classics and, and keep up my ancient Greek. Um, I ended up loving the classics department where I went to undergrad, but I um, I took a class on the Phaedrus, and I think that was the – oh, no, 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 okay. So the real moment was um, my introductory um, course, which was all freshmen had to take it where I went to undergrad, and it was um, Greek history, philosophy, art history, and literature, the first – semester and then Roman uh, equivalent uh, the second semester. And um, the person who ran my discussion section was a philosophy professor. Um, and I don't know what it was, but I didn't like Plato at all. Um, and he insisted that I write my final paper for the course on the Republic. And I put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off. And he gave me a secondary source to read. And I finally, about a week before it was due, sat down, reread the entire Republic, read the secondary source, had a total revelation, fell in love with Plato, and wrote, it was supposed to be a five-page paper, wrote a 20-page paper on the Republic and turned it in as my final paper. Um, and that was the moment that I knew that I wanted to do something with ancient philosophy. Um, and then it, my interests were developed later, but because I started off doing hardcore language analysis with the Greek, uh, I ended up going into classics instead of philosophy, um, and then eventually got pulled into the philosophy department at UCI um, after taking a couple of philosophy courses as electives um, when I was uh, doing um, uh, my classics degree. And it was actually my advisor, um, although I don't think he knows this, that got me to think about ethics in the way that I do now, because I'd always thought of Plato as being someone that gave us interesting insights, but not any way of living in the world, um, not any philosophy that was actually useful to how I should live my life. Um, and uh TAing for my advisor's survey course um, that he teaches, his ancient Greek philosophy survey course, I heard the way that he tried to make Plato's virtue ethics intelligible to the audience. And I suddenly became sort of converted almost. And I was like, yes, this is the way we should think about our lives. We should think about it in terms of virtues. It makes more sense than the ethical systems. Um, it adapts better to circumstances than the ethical systems that we're thinking about. And then I began to sort of tweak my own ethics as I went on and took graduate courses on Aristotle's ethics and thought more about Plato's ethics um, and started working with it. And it's really reading that and then um, reading a lot of uh, 
current psychology literature on practice um, and on expertise to learn how to be better at my field and seeing the incredible similarities between virtue ethics training and the type of like deliberate practice training that people like um, Anders Ericsson study, I suddenly realized that there was this sort of really interesting way that we could get people to become sort of better um, by teaching ethics as a skill in the way that the Greek virtue ethicists did. Um, and, and that's sort of where my development has come from. One of the stories I often hear, uh, Philosophize This is one of my favorite podcasts. Um, when I listen to it, whenever I have to drive, because, you know, my friends and I, we got to go play D&D. It's my <laughs> podcast of choice when I need to drive up to play D&D. Um, he tells us these stories about philosophers that have worked themselves up into like such a knot mm-hmm. about thinking about the nature of things and how they are and how they should be thinking about things. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Um, so honestly, when I was a graduate student in classics, I was really worried about what I was doing and whether it was ever going to be relevant to anyone and how I could justify spending the kind of time that I did on work that I felt was important, but I couldn't really articulate why it was important or why it would help anybody. Um, And that was a real sort of point of crisis for me. And it was something that I kept coming back to while I was getting my degree in classics And something that's been really interesting moving into the philosophy department and uh, coming to think about the ancient texts that I've been working with with for so long with a different lens is that now I can see the concrete impacts that I am having um, and the changes that I've made to my own lives, but also to the lives of the students that I'm teaching, not just through this class that I'm teaching now, but through the courses that I TA, through the mentoring work that I do, um, I work with a program called Think, where uh, philosophers go into local elementary schools and teach critical thinking skills to 10-year-olds. And it's wonderful to see the kind of development that kids that age can have when you teach them how to think critically about something. And it's those kind of moments that are like, yes, my research is making an impact. I am doing something for the world. And so I've sort of gotten out of my knot that way. Whenever I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is important. I'm like, no, there's some really good work that I'm doing. I'm affecting some people's lives. Do you work with people a lot then? Yeah, which is funny. I never pictured myself doing that. I'm a real nerdy introvert. um, (laughs) And I like my, you know, work best when I'm sitting with my books. But I also I feel such pride when I'm working with my students and I see them make progress and I see good things happening to them that I've started to work with people more and more. High functioning introvert is how I call it. Yeah. (laughs) It's um, makes me wonder maybe that's the difference. So when I was at a crossroads, I, I went to physics. That was my undergrad. So I did physics. Um, and uh, my thesis was in the recycling of nuclear fuel, energy oh. research, which, you know, uh, should be like the benefit of energy research should be like self-evident, right? We all have to, you know, we like having being able to flip a switch to get our light and cook our food and drive our cars and stuff like that. These are all great things that we all enjoy. But, you know, but I, I mean, 
I spent too much of my time wondering if what I did was going to be useful at all. So I wonder if that was a real difference, working with people and affecting people that way. Yeah, I think it's really nice to see that immediate effect because when you have a student come up to you after a lecture and say, you know, I've been thinking about this class and I think I need to do some things differently in my life or I think I'm going to sort of change the way that I'm approaching things or um, even just seeing the progress that these 10-year-olds are making when we're teaching them these skills and having them sort of point out that somebody's argument isn't valid or that they didn't give a good enough reason for that or, you know, calling each other out about not having sufficient evidence or the wrong kind of evidence or whatever the case may be. Like, it's so cool to see when that happens and, and to see that kind of transformation. And uh, so I think that I get that immediate feedback, which is really great. Yeah, damn, I would love to live in that kind of world. <laughs> Jesus, sounds cool. Ten-year-olds calling each other out on their shit. Yeah, no, <laughs> sign me up, please. Um, and I remark this because you, there's a sense of groundedness that you have, which is unusual to graduate students. Yeah, and that may be because I'm, I'm used to working with people a lot. And I am not isolated in the same way that a lot of graduate students are. Yeah, we are isolated in a lot of ways. So huh, that's uh, so then for those of us that are, would you have any advice for that? Absolutely. Um, so the reason that I have been uh, working on a lot of the stuff and I have a lot of the confidence that I have as a graduate student is because I joined this writing group run by Professor Barbara Sarnecka in cognitive science. Um, and essentially what her writing group does is it brings together isolated graduate students um, in a place once a week where we can work on developing the necessary skills to survive as a graduate student, but also on developing a community around writing and around solving writing problems and uh, trying to deal with the day-to-day issues that we have as writing, as graduate students who are trying to publish and are going to be evaluated on our writing. And seeing how uh, just once a week, a community like that can transform somebody's ex- experience in graduate school was amazing to me. And I think that every graduate student should try to find a community in which they can do their academic work, as well as some sort of community outside of academia that they can engage in, like a D&D group or any other kind of hobby that they might have. Um, but making sure that you make your academic work social is really important. Um, and, and one of the things that her workshop is based on is this sort of principle of uh, cascading mentorship. And there have been some studies, especially in the medical fields, that show that labs where postdocs are heavily involved in training the graduate students and graduate students are heavily involved in training younger, less experienced graduate students in the lab – Um, are a better predictor of graduate success than test scores or writing ability or any other survival mechanism that graduate students might have. Um, And it's because we sort of show each other how to survive and how to get through this stressful, intense experience that will turn us into experts in our field. 
Um, and so even if you don't, you know, join a sort of formal uh, version of this, there's a possibility that um, this is going to be done in biological sciences at UCI, as well as in the social sciences, and also potentially in the engineering school. Um, but but even if people don't have access to this kind of resource, um, just forming a group of friends who go and write together and, you know, do some of your research together is really helpful. I have two friends. Um, we go out at least once a week to a coffee shop, and we do Pomodoro sessions. So we sit and we write for 25 minutes, and then we complain or socialize or whatever for 10 minutes, and then we do another five, 20 25-minute writing session. Um, and it's a really great way to like get your stressful work that you're avoiding done is because you're like, okay, I'm going to sit with friends, I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to complain about it for 10 minutes. It makes it feel so much better. <laughs> you are the second person I've interviewed that said, uh, that remarked at the importance of community in yeah. grad school and to form con connections, people that you can work with, people that you can have fun with. Um, but certainly... Uh, this line of work attracts introverts, high-functioning or not. Yeah. And personally, I've experienced difficulty in dragging people out of their holes. Oh, And yeah. I know I've had difficulty dragging myself out of my own hole. I wonder if there's some sort of moral impetus on your end to make sure you engage with people. Is that so? Yeah, um... Maybe not moral as in you're a bad person if you don't do it, but rather there's sort of like an ethical imperative in this is going to better the way that you live your life as a graduate student if you form some kind of community. Uh, one of the things, there's a professor at UCI, and I, I don't unfortunately remember her name, who's been doing research on um, this idea of something called academic family, which is sort of creating an interdependent, um, like surrogate family environment for students in academia. I mean, she's particularly been looking at Latinx undergraduates um, and how it increases their success getting through school if they have these kinds of communities. But similarly, I think a lot of graduate students would do well to have a community like a family that they can go to for support that doesn't just include your advisor and, you know, maybe a couple of faculty members in the department, but also graduate students who are older and younger and postdocs and undergrads and sort of all of the people that surround you that are interested in academic work, but who can form the kind of support structure that we all really need. Um, and I think that, uh, it is really hard as an introvert. It was so hard for me to join the writing group when I did it. Um, and I'm really lucky that I ended up having – I had a friend who was in Professor Sarnaka's lab and had been taking this uh, writing group for a couple of quarters by the time that I was – that she suggested I join it. And I basically just said, no, I'm not going to do this. And she's like, look – you just got rejected from something recently. It was some fellowship that I had applied for. She's like, come to our rejection party. And I was like, a rejection party? And she's like, yeah, the idea is you're supposed to apply for lots of stuff. You know you're going to get rejected sometimes, but you have to put the yourself out there to be successful as a graduate student. So we have a party where we burn all of our rejections and drink champagne. And I was like, okay, that sounds okay. Um, I go to this party, I burn my rejection, I hang out with some of these people, but it's awkward. They're all cognitive scientists, I don't know them. I kind of sit in a corner and uh, Barbara 
comes up to me and sort of introduces herself. And then she encouraged me to join the writing workshop as well. Um, and she was really nice and started asking me about my academic environment and my work and what my department was like. Um, and it was only after that that I finally was like, okay, I probably need some support. I'm having trouble writing. I know that I need to finish my dissertation. I'm going to join this group. And the first couple of weeks, I was really skeptical. But after that, I was like, this really is a community and they like me and they're going to support me. And it is okay for me to just like let myself go in this room and just like be one of the people here. And it's, uh, it was hard, but it's totally worth it. So you mentioned that you started up a lot of these conferences and you have all these other extracurricular projects that you're running. How did you get around to running all of those? Do you feel like perhaps maybe because you were empowered by this community that you were more empowered to chase after these opportunities? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, uh, not just this community, but um, UCHRI, which is the UC Humanities Research Institute, which is a UC-wide organization that uh, funds humanities research and organizes events um, is, and does professional development specifically. I, I went to one of their conferences to learn about professional development, both inside and outside academia. And I met another philosopher who convinced me that philosophers could, in fact, get money for things and try to run projects, which honestly, essentially, when you're a philosopher and you try to pitch that you need money for something to someone, they're like, why don't you just sit in your armchair and do philosophy? Surely you just think all the time. Like, why do you need money to do that? <laughs> You're not buying expensive chemicals. <laughs> right, yeah. And we don't need any, you know, like MRI equipment or any of the kinds of things that you might typically need that are expensive. So, and we don't need to necessarily travel because what would we be traveling for, um, those kinds of things. They give us computationalists the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so for uh, so she convinced me that if I had a project that had some kind of deliverable that came out of it, so some kind of product, that I could convince people to fund me. And so since I was starting – um, with the writing workshop. And since I was working with a bunch of social scientists who write grants regularly to try to fund their research, I thought, well, I should learn how to write grants. And then I can try to figure out, you know, what the style of that is so that when I want to put a big project together, I can do it. Um, and uh, I had recently been talking to an archaeology professor who had reached out and said, we need more help in uh, being able to get people more information literate about archaeology and making it easier to contact the public. Um, so I decided I was going to put this information literacy event together, and I started writing grants, um, uh, starting with sort of like small grants and then beginning to move up to, you know, still not large grants for science, like $5,000, but it was, you know, moving up, uh, moving my way sort of up through the process and figuring out how to write these different grants and how to sell this project. Um, and once I started doing that and started being successful and getting money, I realized that a lot of the problems we have are self-created. Um, 
there is money out there and we can convince people to give it to us. We just have to have an idea that people want to fund and present it the right way and present it to a sort of more public audience. So I started honing those skills and, and working with it. And, and since then, actually, I've, uh, been helping a number of my friends who are interested in starting public outreach projects figure out where they can get funding. Um, and so I put a friend who is a directing MFA and is running a production but wanted to create a, um, a podcast that would provide people with the background to understand the nuances of her play um, in touch with Illuminations. And she got funding from this uh, group on campus called Illuminations that does um, combination sort of academic performance art projects. Uh, and I have another friend who uh, wanted to create an Ask a Philosopher booth. So she goes to like coffee shops and uh, farmers markets and stuff and sets up a booth and uh, people come up and ask philosophical questions and philosophers talk to them. Um, I put her in touch with a couple of people who I thought might be interested in funding the project and she ended up getting the money to run that. So it's once you learn how to fund something or how to pitch things the right way to people and you can start making those connections, it turns out the world is your oyster. You just have to find the right methods to do that. That's a significant lesson to learn, that there are opportunities out there. You just, just you know, got to learn how to work it. Yeah, and it, it's something that um, I previously was just very sort of high-minded about my academic stuff. Well, I shouldn't have to cater to people to get money. I should just, you know, be able on the merit of my work to do that. But that's just silly. People want something that they understand. And we can change the world in a better way if we can get people to understand what we're trying to do. And and so once I sort of let that go and I tried to figure this out um, – I, I think it's a lesson that like everybody, every grad student should learn and they should try to leap in directions where they're doing something interesting and exciting and they try to get people on board. Is there anything in particular in the way of advice that stood out to you that you, you might want to share? Uh, so there are, I guess, a number of different things. I don't have a sort of single set of like perfect tips, but um. The first thing is don't be afraid to talk to people about your research. Um, I found that a lot of my friends like don't even tell their families what they're doing because they don't think that they'll care. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think people will care if you sell it to them the right way. Um, and so my thought is not that it's a challenge to go and try to explain to my grandmother what it is that I do. It's something that I should be doing to make my work richer and better. And um, because I care about it, I should care that she can understand what it is that I'm doing. And I should figure out a way to be able to explain it to her and why she should think it's important too. Um, and so that's one of the things that's necessary for trying to go find money and funding for research um, or for academic communication is you just need to be interested in talking about your research and trying to work with people outside of yourself. Um, the other thing is that you need to be willing to 
be intellectually open with others and not be afraid that that openness is going to compromise the rigor of your work. And this is something that I think that graduate students are constantly afraid of, is if they try to simplify something so that they can talk to an audience other than academics, that it will make them look like they're not rigorous researchers. And it's possible that if you explain something in terms that are too simple to an expert in your field, they might not think you know what you're talking about, but that's generally not who you're talking to. Um, and there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to explain what's cool and what's interesting about your research to somebody who doesn't have the understanding for putting it in the most rigorous possible terms. So, what I think graduate students need to do is to figure out how they can still communicate the essence of what they're doing without needing all of the trappings of jargon and anything that they sort of believe make it rigorous. Yeah, certainly it is one of the cultural things about academia that if you try to oh make your talk, that's actually enjoyable to hear maybe throw in a joke or two make it understandable then no you must be some sort of lesser person or something like that lesser researcher doesn't quite know what they're doing um which is a bit of a shame if you ask me uh i've always thought you should be able to give the talk that you'd have to your grandma and to you know like that should be like 80 percent of the talk that you give at a conference honestly that's my opinion um, of course, you're going to have to use a lot of the jargon because that's, you know, what we're in the business of um, creating words that'll explain the specific things that we're dealing with. Um, especially jargon is useful if you're in a particular field and people understand what all that is. Sure. Um, you can say polymer and people know it's like, oh, that's that's this thing. And you can say, you know, is there anything you might want to say to people that I guess... They do get shouted down or get ostracized for being unprofessional or something like that. Because, no, I agree with you. You're right. It's We should we should talk in a way such that it's understandable by people. And I, I agree with you. Like, people are interested in things. And if you can talk to them about it, they, they like hearing about this sort of stuff. Um, but I know... In moments, that's not the experience all the time, right? Certainly. Um, and I mean, I think part of what being an academic is, is learning how to code switch between different environments. So learning how to speak to different people in different contexts. So even when I'm like working with 10-year-olds through Think and I'm trying to explain some concept to them, I'm going to use simpler vocabulary and use different thought experiments that I'm going to use when I'm teaching my undergrads or that I'm going to use when I'm talking to fellow graduate students about the same philosophical problems or when I'm approaching a professor who I want to work with about a problem. Um, and so part of what it is, I think, is that graduate students should learn how to express what they do in that variety of capacities. But I think the breaking it down in the simplest possible terms, like you would for your grandmother or for a 10-year-old or for, you know, some uh, random person that asks you at Trader Joe's what your research is about, um, I think that that's a test balloon 
for how well your research is going to go in an academic context. Because if you can't break it down into those simple possible, simplest possible terms, maybe you don't understand what you're doing quite as well as you think you do. And so some of that fear of compromising intellectual rigor, I think also comes from fear of being challenged by these sort of mundane questions that like regular people in the world will ask that can really unseat our academic confidence in a certain way. Um, so learning how to to talk about the same thing in those contexts and figure out where the jargon that you're using is appropriate will not only strengthen your ability to get money for your research and communicate to people that you want to about your research, but will also make the sort of like rigorous research that you do better when you translate it back into those more rigorous terms. In all of the research outreach courses that they offered at UCI, the first lesson that they gave us was know your audience. Because that's going to define how you're going to be able to talk to them, what words you can say and stuff, and what examples you're going to use, certainly. Um, that being said, though, that I'm going back to this one point about uh, this is kind of how academia is in a lot of ways. That, um, okay, so I was in physics in my undergrad. Einstein's theory of general relativity, which you don't learn as an undergrad because it's so goddamn hard. Mm -hmm. You learn special relativity, which is relativity relativity in this very particular case. And that already puts people's heads into a spin. And that's, um, at least in my undergrad institution, that was one of the first weed-out courses for physics. If you're not going to get this, then like good luck with it. You're not... I mean, we're going to ask you to solve the hydrogen atom next. Like, I mean, what are you going to do, right? Um, good luck. Uh, that being said, kind of the culture there um, in physics is that it re it's captured in this statement. Einstein said that if it's not simple, then if you can't explain it simply, then you don't understand it. Never mind the fact that he had to invent, like, three new fields of mathematics <laughs> to make this work, right? And if you look at his equations, like, oh, yeah, nice, clean, simple, and then you realize, oh, wait, these are all in tensor notation. There's, like, 20 different terms shoved into this one Greek, weird-looking Greek letter. Like, and, I mean, and that's kind of, especially in my undergrad, that was kind of the environment that we were raised in. And, um... You can give a heady, heady talk that's full of jargon, that's way out there, and, like, three people may understand it. And one of those three people might have been Einstein, right? And that's kind of like a feather in your cap. Oh, yeah, I got it. I gave a talk uh, that no one else but Einstein understood. Like, I mean, and, you know, that's, that's almost a, that's like a characterization of the culture that we were raised in. Um, I don't think they did it on purpose, our faculty. It's just just how physics is. Um, and if, like, all of the smart people that we looked up to, and all the smart people in our class that we looked up to were like that, they could explain things very calmly and very clearly, and you would have no idea what the fuck they just said. <laughs> None whatsoever. So I guess when you come across that, um, what might... You do, in that case. Because I can tell you what I did. I was like, no, throw my arms <laughs> up in frustration, take my books, and go back to my computer, and whatever. And make a podcast eventually, five years later. Or something <laughs> like that. 
So I, I went to an undergrad institution that was a little bit like that. Um, there was certainly a, like pride in being able to understand that really challenging talk that nobody else could and being able to sort of speak in those jargon-laden ways that no one else but the highest specialists in the field understood. Um and I can see the importance of that being a sort of feather in your cap. But on the other hand, what what are you really doing if you can only get a few people to understand it? Um, and, and how are you making a difference? How are you moving the field forward if nobody understands how you're moving it forward? Um, and this is something that I've come to in graduate school, uh, this sort of realization that that is not the sort of like be all end all of a perfect academic career is being able to give a totally impenetrable talk that like only the top geniuses in your field will understand. Um, and what I think the real key is to seeing why that isn't as important is if you've ever seen somebody give a talk like that and then someone in the audience ask a question that boils down a really important point into that in that talk into its simplest terms and ask sort of a fundamental challenging question based on that like simple understanding and totally stump the person who's speaking that's the moment where you're like, when you have all of those intellectual trappings that make you feel so cool, it's really because you're trying to keep yourself immune from that question and you still fail no matter how much jargon you have. So for me, what I think is that if you're going to try to like build yourself an intellectual castle where you become the expert. The only way that you can test that is by being able to communicate those ideas on all levels. Because if you can't do that, then you really don't. It's not maybe that you don't understand your field, um, but you're not going to be the most effective researcher or the most effective communicator or the most effective teacher or the one who's able to make a real difference in the world. Because if nobody gets what you're doing, then how can you make any change? Yeah, I agree with you there. But it's interesting, I have a slightly different viewpoint on that. Um, certainly, I think it's important for people to do that kind of work uh, that is super heady and maybe only a few people will understand because without relativity, our GPS would be miles off target, miles off target if you didn't correct for any of that stuff. Um, that being said, I guess I wonder if sort of the progression of things um, I remember, the, so okay, in physics there's this theorem called the Intermediate Axis Theorem that tells you if you have a body that's kind of weirdly shaped, it could rotate along three different axes of symmetry, at three different axes of symmetry, and the, um, the one with the best symmetry will be stable, the one with the worst symmetry will be stable. But the one that the intermediate symmetry, it'll just start doing weird things. It'll flip on itself every so often, and um, it's a it's a really weird thing to try to understand. And it's difficult to explain something like that without going through all of the calculus and all of the equations behind motion that define how that works. And um, 
there's a story about how someone asked Feynman, who was a very famous physicist, not only because he was so goddamn smart, but yeah, like he was he was able to condense all this stuff down so that it was understandable and digestible by anybody. That was kind of his thing. Um, which to a point that I made earlier, people like that, again, again, you, we, like, we're told to emulate people like that in physics, right? So people try their hardest to be as heady as they can, but, you know, they don't really know and understand everything. And then when they ask, get asked a question, they're like, I don't know really what you're talking about because I don't really know what I'm talking about. It's like, it's a hilariously sad thing. That happens a lot. Anyway, my point was, um, yeah, they asked Feynman, hey, could you explain the intermediate access theorem for us? Pretty simple. And he thought about it. And the story goes, he said, no, no, I can't. And it took a dude maybe another decade or two later who finally was able to figure out an explanation for something, for like an intuitive explanation as to why uh, things that are weirdly shaped that rotate behave flip around for almost no reason um and it took a while to get get to that point and i wonder if um like maybe there will be people out there uh who are going to be way smarter than everyone else um and they're gonna just do that work and they'll be heady about it and they'll actually understand it because you know they're actually that smart um and then there's like i don't know for me i wonder if my place is then to like try to take that and just kind of digest it a little bit, then see if we could make it understandable by most people. Because there's something, right? Where was I going with this? How did I even get started? I don't know, but um, <laughs> but I, I think that idea of of that maybe sometimes people can't do that sort of communication for themselves, and they need somebody else to be the person that does the communication or digests it into an intuitive form. Um, it is really important. And uh, I, I think that in a certain way, that's how I feel about the ancient texts that I work with. Um, I can give them to students and have students read them and get really interesting insights out of them. And I can certainly make sure that I, you know, help an audience understand it on its own terms from the primary source. But one of the the things that makes for a great teacher of somebody who, uh, you know, works on these ancient texts like my advisor and hopefully like me someday um, is that you make something that seems initially sort of like dead or heady or weird or just confusing um, to everyday people suddenly full of insights and suddenly understandable. And you are the person that essentially translates that wisdom to someone else. Um, and in particular with uh, this sort of historical work that we do, um, being able to translate something out of the foreign world that it comes from into contemporary language for a contemporary audience. And so that's really important. So just as maybe in like physics or engineering or whatever, you need those scientists who can uh, take the genius work and make it accessible to the world and make it useful to the world. Um, I think we sort of similarly do a lot of that with historical texts. Um, and even with just complicated academic texts and, and, and movements forward in the humanities, where you need somebody who's going to interpret it and show everybody how to get the most out of that information. 
So we got sidetracked a little bit about talking about um, physics in my undergrad, but I remember you were, you were saying you were talking about you're working on a project related to graduate school reform, graduate learning reform. Could you yes. tell us about that? Yeah. So um, I got into this in part because of the uh, study that I've been working on about um, graduate, uh, like doctoral writing groups um, and how they improve graduate well-being and writing productivity. Um, and I think in part because I was doing that, I was hired um, and in part because of the grant writing I'd been doing for my information literacy project, uh, I was hired as a GSR this summer, which is a graduate student researcher, um, to help do research for a uh, large grant to the Mellon Foundation and a smaller grant to the Luce Foundation to try to reform graduate education in the humanities. Um, something that's really interesting that is – uh, a little bit different from the STEM fields, of course, for the humanities is the job market is absolutely terrible coming out of graduate school. And the problem that humanists face is that industry is um, a, a more challenging option than it is coming out of the sciences, because generally industries don't think humanists have a lot of skills that they need, um, which is Unfortunate because we are trained in all sorts of research skills and ways of in compiling and analyzing data and, and all of those things, but it's not as easy to sort of put on paper in a resume in a way that industry is interested in. Um, so one of the questions is how do we better prepare uh, graduate students for life after graduate school and how can we reform graduate training to help them with that? Um, and so these grants are specifically looking at um, uh, trying to do that. And I, it was really interesting sort of getting to be in the back room with the administrators and with the deans to learn how the, that kind of reform takes place in graduate school, because um, it's very slow. There is not that much research on graduate pedagogy and how to better train graduate students. And so we are trying to come up with the best techniques and find ways to determine whether those are successful and then pitch them to these large grant organizations to see if we can get the funding to try out these pilot programs. Um, and what is... One of the major problems that we have in the humanities is, as we were talking about earlier, um, isolation in graduate school. Because humanities students um, do almost no collaborative work with other people. We do very little co-authored work. Um, almost everything is solo written um, that we're evaluated on uh, coming out of graduate school to get hired for tenure, all of these things. Um, and it can be very isolating. And usually you are trained, for the most part, by a single advisor. Um, and if your advisor is not a great person to work with, if they're difficult, if they are not productive writers, um, if they are not good at teaching how to write better or any of these things, they may be the perfect person for you to research due to the content of your work, but they may not be a great person to teach you how to become a successful academic or how to become successful so that you can get a non-academic job out of graduate school. Um, and so part of what we're interested in doing is trying to reform training so that 
uh, students get training from different places. So you get trained in the content of your research by your advisor, but we're hoping to put in place um, graduate writing groups as part of the School of Humanities doctoral education program so that students then have somewhere else to go if they need training in writing. So if your advisor doesn't have the time to train you or isn't good at training students in writing, there's another resource for you to do that. Um, and then similarly, we're putting into place um, professionalization and internship programs to try to give students the like skills that they would need, like grant writing, um, sometimes qualitative research, sometimes sort of integration of humanities and quantitative research, sometimes um, uh, on the ground work in museums or in communication departments or whatever the case may be. Um, to get them prepared for the kind of jobs that they would have after graduate school. Um, and it's been really interesting to notice that I was the one graduate student that was brought in to make some of these decisions for these grants because I was the person hired to do it. And it's amazing that um, a lot of graduate reform is done not really in conversation with the people that they're trying to reform it for and the people that they're trying to train better. And there isn't a lot of evidence-based research that they can borrow from in order to make those decisions. Um, so it was really cool to sort of be on the inside and be advocating for graduate students and be the person to remind uh, people that like, no, we can't do that because that would be a problem. Or remember, you're putting graduate students in a more precarious position because if they have to negotiate for this with their advisors, their advisors might not think they're taking their research seriously or whatever the case may be. And sort of bringing in those graduate student concerns into the way that this grant was going to be written. Hmm, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, certainly reforming things for people without their input is a long-standing historical tradition, yes. unfortunately speaking. Absolutely. It happens a lot, so uh, awesome. What? Yeah, and it's also cool to realize that they were willing to bring a graduate student in to and to take me seriously and to bring me into meetings with all of these people. And, you know, I was there formulating the background documents for um, trying to figure out what the funding priorities of the organization were and then how to pitch the stuff that we wanted to do. And that was really cool because it allowed me to figure out, you know, how is it that you figure out what a grant organization wants to fund? Well, you read through all of their grants and try to pick up themes and try to sort of code what they've done for what they're looking for, what they might be interested in funding and, and you know, figuring out indications of the priorities of that organization or the way that something is going to go. And um, doing that kind of uh, administrative um, background work also gives you just like real insight into uh, how academia works and becomes the way that it is because it's not just the interests of universities that are informing the way that we teach students it's also the interests of funding organizations and of the you know in sciences probably too the industries that are funding the research that are done by particular professors and and it gives you just sort of real insight into how that world is built and then maybe how we could change the way that that's built okay well, it's been an absolute blast talking with you. Yeah, yeah. It's been chatting great. about all these topics and certainly a lot of uh, unexpected introspection on my end. Which, But then again, it shouldn't be that unexpected given what I've evaluated of your personality. Um, so, final question. Sure. <laughs> when you got a stress eat, what's your go-to? <laughs> 
Um, well, there are a number of things depending upon the mood, but, um, one of the things that I really like is, uh, speculose cookies, which are those, like, Belgian cookies that, um, they serve you on, like, Lufthansa flights and stuff like that, but you can get them at Trader Joe's. Um, and, uh, they're just, they've got, they've got, like, cinnamon and stuff in them, and they're just this kind of, like, warm, friendly cookie that you can have with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and I always make sure to have boxes of them and, uh, and, and tea bags and, like, Nespresso pods in my office, because I have, there are some undergrad, there are lots of undergrad students on UCI's campus that are in distress for one reason or another, and as a TA, they sometimes come to your office and they want help with something, and it's just clear that they could really use a cup of tea and a cookie to make them feel better, and so I always try to offer that to students that come to my office, and so we can sort of like eat them together as a way of, you know, dispelling some of the despair that comes from working in academia and from the hardness of life outside of it, so yeah, that's my favorite stressy food. I'm very glad that's how you use cookies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what they were meant for, so I'm yeah, very glad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your time. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you so much.